You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's reading is from John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back turned back, and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. That's picking me up. Great. Uh, Great. On the welcome card that Martine directed you to earlier, there's a bit of a sermon outline. Some of you might find that useful to follow along. There's also a copy uh, of the Bible passage, uh, which you can follow or you can open up your own Bible. It'd be great uh, because really it's God's voice that matters in his word, not my voice. And so you need to be checking if what I'm saying is actually coming out of the Bible. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to gather together this afternoon to hear you speak to us. And, um, well, as I just said, uh, we're also conscious that it's not uh, my voice that uh, matters this afternoon, uh, but we long to hear the voice of Jesus, your Son. For as we've just heard from Dan and as George has just read, uh, it's his words that are full of spirit and life, life now and life forever. So please, Father, uh, open our ears uh, that we might hear the voice of Jesus, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I guess my key question for this afternoon is, I wonder if Jesus has ever said something that offended you. You want to think about that? Just kind of get real, be honest with yourself. Has Jesus ever said something that offended you? He certainly has for me. I remember when I was at university, I was really trying to work out if I wanted to actually live as a Christian in my life. And I remember being particularly challenged by Jesus' words in, uh, later on in John's Gospel, John chapter 14, verse 6. Uh, in that verse, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I remember sitting in my philosophy class thinking about these words And wondering, well, what about my dear Hindu friend who's sitting right next to me? And what about my other mate a couple of seats down who's a practicing Buddhist? And what about the lecturer up the front who's been so kind and caring to me? Uh, That year I was really quite depressed and anxious 
And he'd been incredibly understanding. And yet he thought Christianity was a load of rubbish. So I remember thinking about these words and thinking, Jesus, am I really to believe that all these people who I love and care about and love and care about me, uh, that they need to come to faith in you if they want to go to be with the Father, to heaven, to eternal life, rather than to eternal punishment? It just seemed pretty harsh, maybe even offensive. What springs to mind for you? Has Jesus ever said something that you found really hard? Unpleasant, maybe even offensive. Another time I remember being particularly challenged by Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. There Jesus says, At the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. Jesus is pretty clear that God made two biological sexes, male and female. And part of God's purpose in doing that was that men and women would be united with one another in marriage, in this kind of one flesh union of marriage. So what about our dear friend of 10 or 15 years who's a practicing homosexual and wants to get married? Or the other person I know whose internal sense of gender identity doesn't match up with their biological sex. Hearing these words through their ears sounds a little bit harsh. A bit uncomfortable, a bit offensive. Has Jesus ever said something that offends you? I bet he has. So what do we do when that happens? What do you do when Jesus says something that offends you? As we take a look at this last section of John chapter 6 today, I want to suggest that when Jesus offends you, rather than simply walking away from him because you don't like what he's got to say, ask for God's help to keep walking towards him. Why? For you know that those who walk with Jesus have found true life. It's not as simple as that, but but let me say, when Jesus offends you, rather than simply walking away from him, ask for God's help to keep walking towards him because you're convinced that those who walk with Jesus have found true life. So let's take a look at this passage. Let's look first at verses 60 to 66 where we see the crowd walk away from Jesus because they hear a teaching that offends them. I take a look in verse 60. On hearing it, John says, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Uh, Many of the disciples hear that. That's not referring to Jesus' 12 apostles. We'll come to them in verse 67. Uh, This is the broad group of people who've been following Jesus around. Do you remember that big crowd that had been, you know, wanted to get a feed and they were miraculously fed in the wilderness and so on? They're disciples in the broad sense that they're following Jesus around. They probably don't yet believe in Jesus. That becomes clear soon. And this large crowd is really struggling with Jesus' teaching. They say, this is a hard teaching. 
are by hard there that they don't so much mean it's hard to intellectually understand. It's not so much a comprehension problem. They get what Jesus is saying. They just find it unpleasant. They find it unsavoury, unpalatable, offensive. And this offensive teaching is probably in particular uh, what was found uh, in verses 57 to 61, in particular, oh, sorry, uh, towards the end, 57 to 60. Uh, Jesus' insistence that, uh, you remember, he was teaching about the fact that he's saying he is the true bread that has come down from heaven. Uh, but if people want to uh, receive the spiritual benefits of knowing him, what do they have to do? Jesus says they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Which is pretty grotesque, isn't it? Eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, we, we talked last week about how uh, verse, uh, John chapter 6, verse 30, through until really the end of the chapter, is full of different pictures of what it means to truly believe in Jesus. And this, uh, this kind of graphic picture of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood is just another example of that. We, we talked about that last week. If you want to receive the spiritual benefits of Jesus' flesh that was broken on the cross, his blood that was shed on the cross, it's not sufficient to just look into Jesus, to be near Jesus, to hang out with Jesus' people. What you actually have to do is take Jesus' death into your life personally, into your heart, into your mind, into your very being in such a way that it actually affects your entire life. And that's what Jesus is saying, much like you would eat some bread or have a drink. But this crowd doesn't quite get that. They're taking Jesus extremely literally, and they're incredibly offended by this. And in fact, Jesus knows they'll be offended. So why does Jesus choose this particularly grotesque image that he knows is going to offend this massive crowd? Why not choose something a bit more palatable for them? Well, it's because Jesus wants to sort out which of this crowd really do believe in him. I don't know if you've noticed this, but John's gospel doesn't have any parables. Matthew, Mark and Luke are full of parables. And in those gospels, Jesus says, what's the purpose of the parables? It's to sort out who has ears to hear. He who has ears to hear let them hear. And this graphic, this sort of grotesque imagery here at the end of John 6 serves a similar purpose in John's gospel. It's designed to sift out who it is who really has ears to hear Jesus' teaching. And so this crowd's really struggling with Jesus' offensive teaching. And they say, who can accept this? Who can? That word can it seems like a little word, but it's actually the word where we get our English word dynamite. It's a bit strange. Like It's the word dunamis. Translate comes into English as dynamite. So the crowd's not just saying we find this a little bit tricky. They're saying who could possibly have the power, the dynamic power to receive, to accept this teaching. It just seems completely impossible for them. So what does Jesus say? We'll take a look in verse 61. He says, aware that his disciples were, uh, his, his disciples were grumbling, grumbling about this, uh, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? 
Again, we've seen this throughout John's Gospel. Jesus repeatedly has this kind of supernatural insight into what's going on in our hearts and minds. He knows that this crowd, who most of whom would have considered themselves to be believers in him, are actually grumbling about his teaching, murmuring to themselves. And it's the same with us today. Right now, many of us could put on a brave public face. Maybe when we come to church, you turn up at your Bible study, gospel community, you meet up with a Christian friend, and you ask the question, does Jesus ever say something that offends you? And you say, oh, of course not. A good Christian would never be offended by something Jesus says. We put on a public face, right? Jesus knows the private grumblings of our hearts, of my heart and your heart. He knows that most of us have a particular teaching, a particular truth, a particular idea, uh, when every time it comes up, we find ourselves saying to ourselves or to the person nearby, I can't believe they just said that. It's just so offensive. Jesus knows that. And he knows that's what's going on with this crowd. So he says to them, does this offend you? The word offend there is actually the word scandal. It's sometimes translated as a stumbling block. You know, a scandal in the, for a celebrity is a stumbling block for them. And that's the idea here. Jesus is saying to these people, does this teaching offend you so much that it's going to cause you to stumble in your desire to follow me? It's really going to trip you up. Is that the case? So take a look at verse 62. Jesus says, wait a second. If this offends you, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Now, I don't think it's immediately apparent to us why Jesus, the Son of Man, ascending back to heaven is going to be more offensive than Jesus talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I don't know about your ears, but my ears certainly hear the eating flesh, drinking blood bit as much more offensive. But Jesus says, no, 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 if you think this is offensive, then wait till you see the climax of my ministry. You're going to be out of your mind offended. Why? I think it's because in John's Gospel, the path for Jesus to ascend back to heaven, back to where he's with his father, goes straight through the cross. Before Jesus ascends back to heaven, he's got to ascend to the cross. Before Jesus is lifted up to glory in John's Gospel, he's got to be lifted up in suffering on the cross. These two ideas are connected. So Jesus is saying to this Jewish crowd, this Jewish crowd, it was hard enough for this Jewish crowd to accept the idea that Jesus had, uh, was God himself who'd come down from heaven. You know, the true bread from heaven. Okay, maybe I can kind of get my head around that. But don't tell me you're God in the flesh and as God in the flesh, you're going to be lifted up on a cross. For the Jewish people, the cross was a place of cursing and suffering and shame and dishonour. That just was not fitting for, for God's king, the Messiah. God's king is supposed to put on display honour and power and glory and blessing. And not everything that the cross symbolises. 
As Jesus says, wait until you see me lifted up, ascending to where I was before. It's a similar idea to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 where he says, so we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, an offence to Jews. Jesus knows this crowd is really offended at his teaching. And so in verses 63 and 64, he warns them of the great tragedy of walking away from him. Now take a look in verse 63. Jesus says, The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. What's the connection between verse 62 Jesus ascending to where he was before, and verse 63. I think it's that when Jesus ascends back to glory with his Father, what's he going to do? He's going to pour out his Spirit. So in Jesus' mind, it's just natural to talk about his ascension and then to talk about the Spirit. And he talks about the life-giving power of the Spirit, which is something we see throughout the Bible, isn't it? I think back to Genesis chapter 2, you can read it later on. But it's God's breath, God's spirit uh, that breathes life into Adam's flesh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Or, or Ezekiel chapter 37. It's the spirit or breath of God that gives new spiritual life to the dry bones of the people of Israel. Read that chapter. It's a great chapter. Ezekiel 37. Or, or in John chapter 3. Remember, Jesus said, it's the spirit who blows wherever he wants giving new life to whoever he wants, the new life of being born again. This is the life-giving power of the Spirit. And what's the contrast? Jesus says the flesh counts for nothing. Now, like, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that our physical flesh isn't good in God's eyes. It's not that the physical flesh is not honourable or valuable. Remember John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus, the word of God, became flesh. You can't get a much bigger endorsement than God himself becoming flesh. Jesus isn't saying that there's something inherently bad or evil about the flesh. He's just saying that the flesh, in and of itself, can't generate new spiritual life. But we, in and of ourselves, in our physical beings, we can't through our own obedience and sacrifice and service and efforts and giving and serving, where we cannot make ourselves new spiritually. In that sense, the flesh counts for nothing. It's only the Spirit of God who can give new life, Jesus is saying. And typically God's Spirit gives new life through God's Word. In Genesis chapter 1, it's as God speaks his word and God said and God said and God said and as the spirit who was hovering over the waters, God's word and spirit together created life. In Ezekiel 37, again, that passage I mentioned before, it's as Ezekiel preaches the word of God uh, that is empowered by the spirit of God that the people of Israel get new life. In John chapter 1, It's as God speaks, Jesus, the word of God, remember, 
The definitive revelation of who God is, right? Jesus, the word of God, who is empowered by the spirit himself and can baptize others in the spirit. Uh, It's as that happens, that new life and new birth and new creation is possible. New life, eternal life comes by the power of God's word and spirit. So that's why Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. It's not that we need to sit around and just pray that the spirit of God would enter into our lives in in a kind of magical way. I mean, the, the, the spirit, he might do that. But the way that the Spirit generally gives new life is through the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word work together to bring about new life, new birth, new creation. The words I have spoken to you, Jesus says, they are full of life, are full of the Spirit and of life. Right? The Jesus' disciples we'll see next week in John 7, verse 39. They they don't have the Spirit yet, because Jesus hasn't returned to his Father and poured it out. I poured him out, rather. Uh, But at the end of John 3, where we saw that the Father has given Jesus, his Son, the Spirit, without limit. Uh, So every word that Jesus speaks is chock full of the life-giving power of the Spirit. The very words of Jesus have the power to bring new life. And that's the tragedy of verse 64. The tragedy is that many in this crowd are going to walk away from Jesus and in so doing, walk away from his words that bring life. Yet, Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. Again, there are no surprises for Jesus. He knows which people among this crowd do not believe. How does he know? Well, John explains, for he had known from the beginning which of them uh, did not believe and who would betray him. From the very beginning of his ministry, if not from the very beginning of creation, Jesus knew which people would be his. He knew which people would believe in him. It's no surprise. It bothers Jesus. I'm not saying he's kind of cold-hearted and it doesn't bother him when people walk away from him. It grieves him. But it's no surprise when some people walk away. It's no surprise when one of his 12 betrays him. We'll come to that in a bit. This is the tragedy of walking away from Jesus. In walking away from Jesus, you are walking away from life itself. Life now, life forever. And let me say that's the case, even if you've got very understandable reasons for doing so. There are many people, you you listen to their story, why are you walking away from Jesus? And and you think, yeah, that makes sense. But it's it's a tragedy. So how's it possible for us to keep walking towards Jesus rather than away from him, even when he says stuff that we find offensive? That's what verse 65 is about. Jesus talks about the grace to keep walking towards him. This is why Jesus says, I told you, 
that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Notice in Jesus' mind, why is it that someone comes to him in the first place or comes to him even when they hear hard teachings from him? It's not because they're more religious, it's not because they grew up in the church or they're more moral or they're more socially, politically conservative or more spiritual. It's actually got nothing to do with the person themselves. What does Jesus say? Why is it that someone comes to him? It's because his Father in heaven enables them to come. That word enabled is the word for donating something, for giving something. Jesus is saying, coming to me is a wonderful gift of God's grace. It's not something. The flesh counts for nothing. This is not something you can rustle up within yourself and your own strength. It's something that the Father works in your life by his wonderful grace. And that's why I say... When Jesus offends you, rather than walking away from him, ask for God's help to keep walking towards Jesus. Because if any of us are going to walk towards Jesus, it's going to be because God, our Father, enables us to do so. But tell you, that's not going to happen for many in this crowd, is it? Take a look. Uh, in verse 66. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I'm sure many of you have your own stories, loved family members, loved friends, are people who once seemed to be walking with Jesus and then at some point walked away. Maybe it was really clear and apparent it was because of this issue or this teaching, or maybe it was just more messy than that. But it's always a tragedy when people walk away from Jesus. I mean, this is a real tragedy. You mustn't forget that. To walk away from Jesus is to walk away from life itself. In him was life. And that life was the light of all men. But it's Jesus, it's his words that are full of spirit and of life. So we shouldn't just skip over this verse. It It should grieve us a bit. It's a horrible moment in John's Gospel. When Jesus offends you, please let me urge you to not walk away from Jesus, but to get on your knees and ask for God's help. Ask for God's help to keep walking towards Jesus, for you know that those who walk with Jesus have eternal life. Well, let's look at verses 67 to 71. Of the 12 here, we see keep walking with Jesus because they know that in him they have found life. Uh, verse 67. Of the 12 apostles, uh, Jesus says to them, uh, you don't want to leave too, do you? And if you think about this, it could seem a little bit strange. After all, Jesus has just said, I know who's going to believe in me. No surprises for Jesus. I think it's pretty clear that Jesus isn't asking this question of his apostles because he's not sure if they're going to walk away from him. He knows. He's not asking it for his own sake. He's asking this question for their sake. 
Right? He knows that in the face of them seeing lots and lots of people walking away from him, it's going to be for their spiritual good to publicly nail their colours to the mast. And to say, no, Jesus, we're not going to walk away. We're sticking with you. And unsurprisingly, perhaps, if you've read some of the other Gospels, who is it that jumps in with the first response? It's Peter. Right? He's a bit like me, a bit too quick to speak sometimes. Anyway, verse 68, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And maybe it's useful to notice what Peter doesn't say here. What Peter doesn't say is, oh, no, Jesus, we don't find any of your teachings hard. We don't struggle with anything. We're not finding it hard to stomach any of your teachings. He doesn't say that. I suspect the apostles did find some of Jesus' teachings hard. What Peter does say is that despite those struggles, he's like, where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to turn to because you have the words of eternal life? Uh, It's a climactic moment in John's Gospel after the tragedy of verse 66. uh, There's this triumphant moment of Peter saying, we've we've got this. We might be a bit bit slow on understanding some of your teaching, Jesus, but we understand this, that every word we hear from you contains the uh, the life-giving power of God's Spirit. Likewise, for for some of us here, uh, we might find some of Jesus' teachings harsh or offensive, difficult to hear. I I think in the end you've got to ask yourself, I could walk away from Jesus. You could say, well, am I going to walk away from Jesus and the offer of life now and life forever for the sake of surrounding myself with people who never say something that offends me? but offer no hope of life, you see. That seems to me, I mean, maybe that's too dichotomous, that's one of Gabby's favourite words, but um, that seems to be the choice. Oh, we live in a culture, you know, I don't, maybe you've heard the term cancel culture, but that's the vibe, isn't it? If someone says something that makes you uncomfortable, hurt, if it offends you, what do you do? You cancel them from your life. It doesn't make sense to me with Jesus. He's God in the flesh. Chances are his perspective is sometimes going to be different from ours as human beings. He's going to say stuff that doesn't sit right. And I'm betting that the problem's more likely to be in us than in him. It just doesn't seem wise to cancel him. Walk towards him and the offer of life that he gives now and forever. In verse 69, Peter declares exactly what the 12 apostles have come to believe about Jesus. We have come to believe and to know, he says, that you are the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God was a pretty common title for the Messiah, God's King. So Peter's saying, we've come to believe and know this, and despite all these people walking away from you, Jesus, we continue to know and believe that you aren't just some prophet. Remember back in verses 14 and 15, that's what the crowds thought. 
Right? You're not just the prophet like Moses. You are the Messiah, God's king. Are the one who's come to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Right? This must have brought Jesus' heart great joy to hear his apostles declare their faith in this. And yet, he wants to remind them of something in verse 70. Have I not chosen you, Jesus says, the twelve? See, I think Jesus heard Peter's response and he thought that that could have sounded like the apostles thought they had something to be proud of. No, Jesus, we're not like that spiritual riffraff over there who's walking away from you. We're going to stick with you, Jesus. We're right there with you. We're choosing you. Jesus wants to nip that sort of spiritual pride in the bud. He says, let's get something straight. We're all on the same page about one thing, aren't we? That you're my apostles because I chose you, not because you chose me. Again, the emphasis is on God's sovereign grace in choosing, in saving, in bringing new life. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying no one's doing him a favour by sticking with him when other people are walking away from him. He's the one doing us a favour by pursuing us, by choosing us, by saving us, by dying for us. He's given us an overwhelming, abundant, overflowing favour. So let's not talk as if we're kind of boosting Jesus' self-esteem by hanging out with him when other people are ditching him. That's what he's saying. So Jesus chose all of his 12, which is a bit weird, isn't it, when we get to the end of the passage? Because he chose one of his 12, seemingly for a very different purpose. Verse 70, second half of verse 70, Yet one of you is a devil, Jesus says. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, uh, who though on, uh, one of the twelve was later to betray Jesus. Uh, just as a little bit of as an aside, I suppose, I think sometimes uh, we're a little bit afraid to call certain acts what they really are with strong enough language. Uh, Jesus doesn't seem bothered by that. You notice in verse uh, in these verses, he doesn't just say, "Oh, one of you, one of you has some imperfections. One of you's got some human flaws. One of you's got some areas of brokenness in your life." But don't worry about it. Like we're all broken, we're all in this together. And there's absolutely a place for that sort of language in, in speaking about sin. And human frailty. I'm not kind of saying we should never use that language. But Jesus doesn't say that here, does he? He says, one of you is a devil. One of you is the devil, actually, is what he says. He's saying Judas's act of betraying him is something that he's doing in league with Satan himself. He's cooperating with Satan. It's a wicked and evil and devilish act And Jesus has no qualms about calling it that. And I was saying we should shoot from the hip with this sort of language all the time. But I guess I am saying that when you're sitting with someone who's experienced real evil and wickedness in your life, 
it's just not that much of a comfort to them to say, oh, I'm sorry that you've experienced, you know, you've been knocked around by someone's brokenness. No. Like some sins are really horrendously evil. And at times we should call them out as that. That's what Jesus does here. So if Jesus knew that Judas was going to commit such a devilish act, a wicked act, then why choose him to be one of his 12? I'm sure you've had that question. If you haven't had it in your mind before, hopefully you've got it in your mind now. It's a pretty big question. We don't have time to answer it all. I Googled it during the week. I found a helpful kind of podcast by John Piper. I thought it was helpful anyway. Ask Pastor John. You can look it up later on. I'm going to share four brief things amongst the things that he shared in that podcast. Why is it that Jesus chose Judas? If this is something that you're, a question you're interested in, you might want to jot down a couple of things. First, Jesus chose Judas... Uh, to be one of his 12, uh, because he wanted every aspect of his life to fulfil the Old Testament predictions about the Messiah. So, for example, you could write down Psalm 41, verse 9, uh, which speaks about the suffering of the Messiah, God's King. And it says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Jesus is really keen for it to be abundantly clear that he is the Messiah, God's king. So every aspect of his life, including this betrayal by a so-called close friend, has to be a part of his life. Second, Jesus chose Judas to show us that God uses even the most horrendously evil acts to achieve his purposes to save the world. So you think about it, if you were in Judas's shoes, uh, he might have thought that he was enacting his plans and purposes to betray Jesus. And on one level, he was. But actually, God was using Judas to achieve his bigger picture, uh, bigger picture purposes on a grand scale to save the world. A third, Jesus chose Judas to make it really clear that it's not enough to hang out with Jesus' people It's not enough to perhaps have right beliefs about Jesus. It's not enough to uh, do ministry in Jesus' name or perform miracles in Jesus' name. Judas did all of those things, if you read the Gospels. None of those things in and of themselves are a guarantee that you've really come to faith in Jesus. So Judas is a bit of a warning to us. Kind of being religious and hanging out with church people isn't sufficient for being a real Christian. And fourth, Jesus chose Judas uh, to, I guess, be a a really vivid example for us of the power that the love of money can have in our lives. Again, uh, indebted to John Piper for these. John 12, verses 4 to 6. A woman anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume uh, and... Judas comments in this way. Judas Iscariot, was, uh, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now John comments in verse 6, Judas didn't say this because he actually cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, 
uh, he used to help himself uh, to what was put into it. Uh, so again, Judas is a solemn warning to us. Isn't it? It's possible to hang out with Jesus to be in the very presence of the one and only Son of God in the flesh, who John says in, in, in chapter 1, uh, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of the Father. So Judas hangs out in Jesus' presence for three years and then decides, I'm going to trade all that for 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because his heart was gripped by money rather than Jesus. This is, what a horrendous, a horrendous thing to be so close to the glory of Jesus and yet to be blinded to it because of your love of money. So what is it that you do when Jesus offends you? When? Notice that. I'm assuming that he will. First, I want to urge you to be honest about the fact that Jesus has offended you with Jesus. He can handle it. Tell Jesus that you're finding his teaching on this topic or that topic hard. Maybe more than hard. And actually, it would be great if you could tell another Christian about it. I'm happy for you to come and talk. I've already shared a couple of examples from my life, so come and talk to me. There's no use pretending about this. We all know we struggle with certain teachings. Let's talk about it. Just get it out in, open, get it out in the open. And once we're talking with one another, we can ask for God's help, his grace, his enabling to keep walking towards Jesus rather than away from him. Because we can remind one another that it would be foolish to cancel Jesus from our lives. For he has the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Uh, let me pray. Our Father, uh, you know our hearts and our minds. Uh, you know the private grumblings of our hearts. Uh, the things that, uh, the teachings of our Lord Jesus that we find hard to stomach, uh, that we try to explain away, that we're in denial about, that we just avoid. We pray, Father, this day that we would be honest with our Lord Jesus about those teachings and perhaps with a trusted Christian brother or sister. We pray, Father, that by the power of your spirit that you would enable us by your grace to keep walking towards Jesus, your son, for we know he never walked away from us. Indeed, he walked in our footsteps all the way to his death on the cross. So may we continue to walk towards him together, knowing that those who walk with him have found true life. In his name we pray. Amen.